Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. This is New Books in Eastern European Studies, and I'm your host, Jill Messino. Today, I'll be speaking with Leah Uppi about her new book, Free, A Child and a Country at the End of History, which was published by Penguin Press in 2021. Welcome, Leah. Thank you for having me. So just a little background on Dr. Uppi before we begin. She is Professor in Political Theory in the Government Department at the London School of Economics and Adjunct Associate Professor of Philosophy at the Research School of Social Sciences at the Australian National University. She was a postdoctoral fellow at the Newfield College in Oxford and a researcher at the European University Institute, where she also received her PhD. Her research interests include normative political theory, particularly democratic theories of justice, issues of migration and territorial rights, enlightenment political thought, Marxism and critical theory, and nationalism in the intellectual history of the Balkans. Her publications include Global Justice and Avant-Garde Political Agency, which was published with Oxford University Press in 2012. Migration and Political Theory, The Ethics of Movement and Membership, which was co-edited with Sarah Fine and also published with Oxford University Press, and that was in 2016, and The Architectonic of Reason, Purposiveness and Systematic Unity in Kant's Critique of Pure Reason, which was also published with Oxford University Press, and that was in 2021. So I'd like to begin with a general question, Leah. The title of your book, it's called Free, and a good portion of the book is focused on your childhood in socialist Albania. And of course, socialist Albania is not an entity we conventionally associate with freedom. Yet for you, it is associated to some extent with freedom. So can you explain why this is the case? So the book is connected more than with freedom as an existing reality, with this kind of yearning for freedom that I was first exposed to in 1990 when I stumbled on a pro-democracy protest that is also the beginning of my book. Albania was a communist country, and I had grown up thinking that it was also the freest country in the world. And it was only in 1990 that I discovered that uh, what I thought was something that could be taken for granted, the fact that the country was already a free country, as told by the communist schools, by the education system, was in fact different reality from how I had known it. And the book begins with these first pages in which I'm in this protest and I hear protesters shout freedom and democracy. And so Albania was for me the context in which this question of freedom was first raised as a question. It's a place where freedom appeared sometimes as an ideal, sometimes as an illusion, sometimes as a promise of political institutions, sometimes as betrayal. And so this quest for freedom, I think, has accompanied my thinking about the topic and was shaped in significant part by my life in Albania. 
Yeah, I'd like to move on to talk about your family background um, and specifically your grandparents, your parents and your grandparents. So you note early on in the book that your family had no socialist martyrs to commemorate on the 5th of May and indeed that it was even worse than that. And so maybe you can discuss this a little, talk about the background of your parents and your grandparents, their biography. And as you discuss this, maybe note why biographies under socialism were so important. Yes, biography was this word that I grew up with, a really important word that was so important that sometimes we struggled to ask, what does it mean? We all took it for granted. It was clear that it has something to do with one's family background, with family circumstances. But as I was growing up, uh, I heard this word all the time around me, but always qualified in some way. So biographies were divided between good and bad clean and stained. If my mother had to prepare a document for work, she would be often asked by my father, so have you written anything on your biography? And she would start the form by saying, I come from a family with a good biography. Uh, In fact, it was not such a good biography. And one of the things that was a turning point in my life in 1990 was when I discovered something about the family background that suggested that our biography was in fact one of the most problematic ones that you could have in communist Albania. But basically, biography was something to do with their family circumstances. And um, this began to occur to me already when I was a child, but without really knowing the full implications of the question, when especially during the 5th of May was a day in which we commemorated the heroes of the Second World War. And it was a really important day in communist Albania, in part because the roots of the Communist Party were in the Second World War and the war effort in the resistance against the fascists and the Nazis, and the party was born in this uh, war effort. And and so, therefore, it was always both the birth of the party was celebrated and the successful resistance to the Nazis and the fascist Albania was one the only other country in Europe, apart from Yugoslavia, that had managed to liberate itself from Nazis and fascists without external help from the Allies or the Soviet Union. And in the history of the country, there was was always a moment of pride, also in the telling of the story. And so uh, often on the 5th of May, which is when we celebrate, we commemorated the heroes of the war. Party officials would pay visits to um, families of heroes who had either died in the resistance effort or who had been done heroic things. And one of the things that I remember, one of the earliest questions about myself as a child was the fact that we didn't have any relatives who had participated in this war effort, who had fought, who had been part of the resistance. Not just that, but uh, my father had the same name and surname as a former Albanian politician who had been minister and prime minister, who was also associated with collaboration with the fascists and who, in fact, had been one of the central government Albanian figures for the transfer of the crown of Albania from the from from Zog was the king in the 30s to the Italian occupier. So not only did my family not have any heroes of the war to commemorate, not only never we never received visits from party officials, but our surname was associated with this stained character from the fascist era, who was the equivalent of the Vichy government in Albania, someone who was connected to um, to a kind of collaborationist tendency in the government. And only later, and and when I was a child and I asked about this, I was always told, oh, you know, he just happens to have the same name and surname as your dad. And he just, we just, people have the same surname. And it's only when the system fell in 1990 that I discovered that my dad didn't have the same name and surname. 
by coincidence, we were in fact related. And he was, in fact, his great grandson of this um, fascist politician. Uh, Yeah, that's one of the threads that runs through the book is that these stories about the family had to be concealed or crafted or presented in a partial selective way as a means of protection, right? Protecting you, protecting the family. And so that it creates kind of an existential crisis in a way once once this is all revealed that here you have a family member who was essentially a quizzling, right? And to, to continue with this topic on the family, I wanted to ask about, you know, your mother and father and the way in which their values, their, their radically different values, because you know, both your mother and your father, they had radically different values, uh, clashing values and attitudes in, in some sense. And how did that shape your experience growing up, right? So on the one hand, you have to deal with the legacy of your grandfather, but then you have your mother and father who have different ways of looking at the world. So how did that shape your outlook? Um, I think it puts me in dialogue with different perspectives on politics and on freedom and on the question of what does a just and free society look like from very early on. They were My parents were both very different politically and in outlook, in the kind of worldviews that they had. They were also extremely different characters and so they were temperamentally also very different. In fact, I think the political differences between them weren't very clear to me until when Albania became a democratic or so-called free society in 1990, when it opened up and when communism fell. Before that, as I say, there were character differences and uh, there were differences in outlook. For example, my mother had never really shown an interest in politics. My father was clearly very interested in, in international politics. But they never discussed Albanian domestic politics. They always um, somehow never spoke about it. And so um, I had this idea that my mother was only interested in other things. And my dad was interested, was the one who was interested in politics, but always the politics of kind of faraway places. It was only in 1990 when the regime fell that I discovered that my mother, the reason she never spoke about politics is that she was fiercely uh, a fierce dissident and was so, so critical that she couldn't say anything without really putting people in danger. And my father was also very critical, but from a different perspective. My mother was more of a kind of classical libertarian person type who thought that uh, freedom is the freedom to be free from state authority and real freedom is the freedom to let the individual decide what is best for them without interference from anyone. And so she was extremely suspicious of state intervention, of course, during communist period, because there was no freedom of association, no freedom of thought, and no freedom of movement. But also afterwards, she was always skeptical and resistant to the interference of bureaucratic units or of uh, other institutions that claimed to know what was better for the individual. And so she was this very independent-minded, very strong character and very strongly connected to what I think now philosophically as a kind of negative idea of freedom, which is a freedom from something. And my father was more, was a sort of very different. He had much more uh, social sensitivities. So uh, obviously he had also been a victim of communism before 1990, but he shared an idea of freedom that one might associate to positive freedom, which is a freedom too. For him, it's not enough that people have freedom of thought and freedom of association and freedom of opinion. It's also important to have, or it was also important to have opportunities to flourish. And insofar as you lack those opportunities, you couldn't really be said to be fully free. And so they had this, and, and, and for him, it was also important, therefore, that institutions could 
interfere to guarantee certain things to people that would then enable them to exercise those freedoms. And so this is why he didn't have this uh, skeptical outlook on the state that my mother retained also after 1990. He was much more of a kind of classical social democratic uh, type. And I think the way in which their debates and dialogues and their different ways of looking at the world shaped me was by making me aware more aware perhaps than other people of this radical diversity of political opinion that was within the family and that made me also perhaps more disposed to seeing whether these perspectives could be put in dialogue with each other and what they shared in common and to see if there one could develop a kind of conversation between uh, polar opposite opinions. This is an example, of course, of the dual lives that individuals lived, right? In, in the private sphere, the domestic sphere, they can have exposure, uh, ostensibly or potentially, to differing ideas as long as, uh, of course, the children are careful with whom they share that information. But then on the other hand, you have the public sphere and you have to be very careful. And so my next question is actually related to that, to schooling. And you had already talked about how, you know, when you were growing up and you would learn that Albania was the best country and the freest country in the world. So maybe you could talk a little bit about your primary school teacher, Nora, and what you learned about Albania and other parts of the world uh, during this period. Yeah, so uh, Nora is in the book, my moral education teacher. She's a committed party member who is introduced in the book by saying that she hasn't washed her hands for days after meeting Enver Hoxha, the founding father of Albanian socialism. And she believes that Albania has a mission to guide the world in this transition to uh, from socialism to communism. And so she articulates very fluently in her moral education lessons basically the perspective of Albanian socialism on the outside world. The fact that, for example, the Soviet Union and China are both considered sellout countries who have abandoned true socialism. And she also articulates more generally um, in the book this kind of state socialist perspective on a number of issues. So the fact that she says liberal freedom is just a kind of formal equality before the law, but doesn't really help disadvantaged social classes. Or she says that liberal societies are kind of torn by racial injustices. She has kind of contempt for money, and she talks about the way in which workers are exploited under capitalism. She talks about the ideological role of religion, uh, and she's also aware of the problems of socialism and the fact that class struggle still persists in a socialist society, but that's because she says there is this real communist ideal that hasn't quite been realized, that is the kind of moral horizon. And so she, in a way, represents the official doctrine of how the country saw itself and how it also deployed Marxist ideology to reflect on its own unique perspective on the world, which was the perspective of a very isolated, small state who, at the time in which I was growing up, had cut ties with almost every other state that there was out there, both of the liberal capitalist imperialist kind, as they were called them, or also of the uh, socialist version that was more moderate and, and more revisionist in the Soviet Union and so on. So that's uh, Nora is, in a way, the kind of communist ideological heart of the book and is introduced in the first part to try and explain the kind of ideology that I was subjected to as I was growing up, which was very, very different from what my parents believed, but where I didn't quite know where the differences were until um, 1990, until the system fell and everything became much clearer. Yeah, and she's also clearly a true believer, and you didn't have a lot of those left in the Eastern Bloc by this time. 
So I find that really interesting, although maybe that wouldn't have been as easy to detect as a, as a child. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, yeah, it's also not clear, actually, whether she was a true believer or not, because this is the things that people said. And the things that, right. one of the things that I raise in the book is when in 1990, the country went overnight from the working classes parading for the 1st of May and celebrating Albanian communism and socialism and the resistance of Albania compared to other countries who had all fallen by that time, uh, and then in December, the same classes of people, the same workers, the same students who had been parading on the 1st of May are actually taking on the streets to demand freedom and democracy. Uh, of course, Nora is in school as these dialogues play out. She's trying to say, well, they are hooligans. But we don't know whether she's actually also just repeating, playing a part and doing her role. She's supposed to be a moral educator and she's supposed to just tell us what the state thinks or what the... Uh, Albanian communists believe but it's not clear whether she's actually genuine in her belief or not and it would have never been clear this is one of these radical uncertainties about to what extent people who are being held captive by by an ideology are actually committed to these ideas or are they just repeating them for the sake of you know not being contested or not being in trouble or because they're making some kind of compromise. Right, as a source of protection. And then, of course, there's those who they can't admit to themselves once it collapses that what they believed in was actually not the reality because it's too difficult uh, from an existential and and emotional standpoint. Um, So I wanted to talk about the cover of the book. It's a brilliant cover, and uh, the cover features a statue of Stalin. However, it's a decapitated statue, right? Stalin's head is floating above his body. Um, And his body, the statue, is being uh, embraced by the arms of a child. And so in your book, this image assumes not only figurative, but literal meaning. Uh, And you talk about recounting, hugging the Stalin statue on that rainy day in December of 1990. So can you talk about this event, this this, this episode? Yes, Yes. so this is the start of the book. It's a normal uh, after-school day in the middle of December 1990, and I stumbled on protests and I I didn't see the protests. I could just hear dogs barking and the police chasing people and people shouting these slogans of, of uh, freedom of democracy. And I had ended up in this part of town by coincidence and was really terrified because I thought I'd be in danger and because I was really scared of the dogs. And so I began to kind of run away from where the noise was coming from and uh, ended up finding shelter in this uh, Stalin statue kind of hiding behind it and, and hugging, holding onto the knees. Until and and that's where the book starts with this with me thinking about Stalin and the role that Stalin had played in Albanian communism. Of course, Albanian communism had identified itself very strongly with Stalin. It had actually broken ties with the Soviet Union at the point in which the Soviet Union became more critical of the Stalin cult and what and the Stalin historical legacy after the twentieth Congress. And then at some point, suddenly raising my head and realizing that the Stalin statue had actually lost its head, that Stalin had been decapitated, and not understanding why this character, who I had always associated alongside Enver Hoxha to the triumph of communism, to a kind of role model, to a figure that gave inspiration to people in the country, why would the protesters be particularly angry with this man? And why would this symbol be so important that they would actually want to kind of destroy a statue? And that was really the point in which all beliefs begin to shatter in terms of what kind of world have you lived in and how committed to real freedom was this world and 
what have you been told from your family, from the school, from the environment around you, and how much of what you know about that world can you still hold on to and how much needs to be radically revisited and revised and changed. So how old were you when the events of December 1990 occurred? 11. 11, right. So, uh, of course, this would have been an incredibly confusing, shocking, bewildering experience for you and certainly difficult to process at the time. Um, I'd actually like to continue with the discussion of December 1990, actually the period of uh, post-socialist transition. And this also gets us to the overarching theme of your book, right? What it means to be free. Uh, And you note that in the post-socialist period, the word freedom was ubiquitous, but that it was used with an exclamation mark. So what did freedom mean for you in post-socialist Albania? And what did it mean for ordinary Albanians? So for all of us at that point, it meant, first of all, freedom from the oppressive character of the institutions that we had lived under. So freedom from the power of the party and of the cult of Ender Hoxha on the lives of ordinary Albanians. Freedom from censorship, freedom from this ideological manipulation of everyone and freedom of thought and freedom of association. And... uh, And then a whole range of other freedoms that Albanians hadn't known up to that point, so the freedom to uh, have access to Western goods, for example, or the freedom to leave the country. You would have been shot at the border if you had tried to leave Albania before uh, 1990. The freedom to watch, you know, whatever television you wanted to without worrying about repercussions, the freedom to talk about or to criticize the government with whoever you wanted Um, So I think at that point in 1990, it generally meant anything that is defined in contrast to uh, the state, the kind of official state ideology that had shaped people's lives up to that point. And then more than that, it's a difficult and and question that still I wonder what the answer really is, because at one point in 1990, this desire for freedom that was different from from the freedom under communism was very quickly equated with a desire also for free markets, for free trade, for a kind of liberal understanding of civil society and the state and so on. But of course, there was a dark side to all of these freedoms that arrived in 1990 as well. There was a human and social cost about which my book talks, especially in the second half. And so the interesting question to raise now with hindsight is to what extent this rejection of state socialism and of the idea of freedom that was embedded in that state socialism, to what extent did it actually entail also a desire and a craving for a different kind of freedom, perhaps market freedom or a certain understanding of individual responsibility that one would associate to liberal or libertarian views of the world? And from your experiences at the time and your perception, um, was it was it that capacious the the term freedom for individuals that it meant basically freedom to do anything without any restrictions whatsoever i think Did so it- i think there mm-hmm. was a sense in which people were really hostile to everything that meant government intervention or government efforts to shape people's lives or you know even prudential consideration there was a kind of embrace of this radical freedom that was even almost sort of bordering on anarchy and in fact led the country to the verge of anarchy. But I think it came from this hostility to the extremely regulated and directed way in which people's lives had been uh, organized and shaped before 1990. And so the kind of extreme isolation and extreme 
um, oppression was then followed by this extreme openness and endorsement of this extreme opposite idea of freedom. So yeah, like a total reaction to what had preceded it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Kind of building on this, but also somewhat going in a more, let's say, more nuanced direction analysis of the post-socialist period. Often the collapse of state socialism in Eastern Europe is, is presented as this major rupture, right? But there were, in fact, many continuities. And one that you mentioned was that the population was expected to sacrifice, right, to continue to sacrifice for a better future as they were expected to under socialism. So could you discuss this, talk about some of maybe the continuities you observed? Yeah, so there was a sense in which obviously the country was in in very severe crisis in 1990. It was in economic hardship already before. There were shortages and scarcity. But now there was a sense that everything had to be redone and reorganized from scratch. That you know, politically, institutions would have to run very, very differently. We were moving from one party state to a plural pluralist party democracy. Uh, at an economic level, we had been relying on the state sector and state companies exclusively without any margins of um, space for private initiative. And from there, we went to the extreme opposite, which was the necessity of privatizing state companies and opening up the economy and liberalizing trade and so on. From a social level, we had gone from you know the party telling people what they could wear, and especially after the Chinese, the Cultural Revolution, you know, even wearing a Western trench coat could have put you in trouble. To then people feeling, well, now we can wear whatever we like, and you know, girls can have makeup as teenagers, and you can have crop tops or whatever, short dresses, short skirts. So the sense, sense which everything that was not possible before became possible afterwards. But there was also, as I say, a social cost to that, in part a cost that came from just being unaware of the dangers to which too much freedom exposes you. This was also the time in which people started taking drugs, for example, and, you know, all kinds of uh, traffics entered the country and they were all considered normal occupations. You know, you could you could be a, a people smuggler just as you had been a bus driver or a factory worker before. So the idea that individuals had to do anything they could in order to survive in this very difficult environment, very difficult both economically, as I say, but also socially, and that there was no sense of people have to be collectively responsible. Everyone does what they can and take advantage, takes advantage of what they can. And if this leads to uh, everyone kind of running up against everyone else, then this is just a cost that needs to be absorbed. And at an institutional level, there was a kind of parallel to that as well, because the very idea of shock therapy as the reforms that were imposed to Albania and to Eastern Europe at that time entailed was that, you know, you have a disease or a sick patient that needs radical reshaping. And uh, therefore, the idea of the shock therapy was you give kind of you send electric waves to the patient to try and help them cure a kind of fundamental illness. And of course, this is painful in the short term. This will bring costs, but these are the costs of transition. And hopefully there will be a point in which free markets will begin to work for everyone and open society will begin to bring the benefits that people had uh, wanted. Right. So a radical, extreme response to the economic climate, right, to, to dealing with the economic change. So I wanted to talk a little bit about discontinuities, too. And one of the things you note is the Western response to emigres, right, after socialism. So we talked about how during the Cold War, the idea of Western countries accepting emigres or individuals for asylum, right, it was, it was kind of a way in which the West could use that um, to buttress 
the superiority of liberal democracy. But then after socialism, and as it relates to Albania, you have people fleeing, right, especially to Italy. Um, And the West is no longer (laughs) embracing individuals from Eastern Europe in their countries. They're no longer accepting them, quite the reverse. So maybe you can talk a little about this, about the flight and and, and the costs and just the, the impact. Yeah, this was a really interesting discursive shift that happened in the early 90s, and especially with regard to immigration. So, And this is another one of these examples that I use in the book to talk about the inconsistencies and the asymmetries that there are in speaking about freedom of movement. When does it matter? When does it ma- does it not matter? Who is responsible for restricting it? And how do we evaluate morally those agents who are responsible? And one of the things that I highlight in the book is the fact that if you care about freedom of movement... It shouldn't matter whether you know someone is free to exit a country or to enter another country if someone is shot leaving a border or if they're capsized because they're on a boat that is you know not allowed to enter Western to join a Western coast. And yet these were the kinds of asymmetries that many Albanians were exposed to. So before 1990, uh, you wouldn't have been, as I mentioned, allowed to leave the country. You would have been shot at the border. And if you had, by some miracle, managed to cross to go into the other side, then you would be received like a hero or like a dissident that would tell the truth about the oppressive nature of the country that you came from. And then suddenly in 1990, the political system changed and uh, the economic system was in some ways a victim of the political system. And yet nobody was talking about political dissidents anymore. And, uh, you know, we the category shifted radically. At the beginning, you were, before 1990, you would have been considered a political refugee. And then after 1990, you were just an economic migrant, which, of course, the label applied to the very same people, but the implications of that label were very, very different because a, a refugee, a political dissident, was someone who was a victim of a system. And an economic migrant was someone who came almost with a kind of responsibility for the society that they had lived under. And so this is where the discourse began to change. You know, the emphasis on Western values began to emerge. This idea that these were societies that were people didn't really know how to work and they lived on traffic and they were dangerous. And so suddenly someone who had been this, these very same people who, as I say, had been telling the truth about these oppressive regimes in Eastern Europe suddenly became almost equated with the uh, failures of those regimes and responsible for those failures. And then it became became individually morally blameworthy. They became a threat to the Western way of life, a threat to liberal values and so on. And I think uh, this is an interesting asymmetry because people in the West don't often think of themselves as agents who are placing constraints on the freedom of other people. They think of their way of life as being undermined, as their freedom as being undermined by the others. But to what extent they contribute to restricting those freedoms is something that they never consider and they never ask themselves. And in part, this discussion of these asymmetries between the freedom to leave one country and the freedom to enter another country is there precisely to show the inconsistencies and the ideological package with which our discussion on freedom often comes wrapped in these different societies. Right. And also the hierarchies that are created, right, where you have a situation which a a dissident, an intellectual dissident is accepted, but uh, an economic migrant, as you know, is not. Yes, absolutely. And And how much the framing and how much the discourse, the narrative and the framing of that narrative shapes these moral judgments around these people who are ultimately, as I say, exactly the same people. Right. 
So I wanted to talk a little bit about your parents and what they were involved in after the collapse of socialism. So they both get involved in politics. However, you note that it was your father who ultimately won a seat in parliament, despite the fact that your mother was this really confident woman who was a great speaker and garnered a lot of respect. So why was this the case? I think in part it was a gender issue. My mother decided that it was not a good look if she had gone on to be a politician and kind of remained prominent in politics. And so she decided to kind of push my father because she felt that my father was felt left out and that she'd had to somehow justify herself and her career. And in part a personality issue, my mother was less compromising and found it harder to negotiate and to campaign politically and to make adjustments to, you know, uh, the kinds of skills that one would expect of a politician who is able to, as I say, talk to different parties, gather different views and compromise with them and find uh, intermediate alternatives she was completely incapable of and so she was someone who was much more at home in the social movement in the sort of radical nature of the demands on the streets and on the squares and speaking in a rally and so on but when it came to standing for parliament and representing people and uh, talking to different interest groups and so on my father was much more accommodating and my mother felt that he was uh, that my father would have been much better at um, gaining a seat but also at representing different people so in the end it was in part as I say a combination of these more social elements social factors and then these personality factors that led to her campaigning them for him effectively to replace her and using her contacts and her networks to support him to gain his seat that's fascinating. So she she kind of was concerned about emasculating him if she would have gone on to politics. Um, and then also the issue that she wasn't as compromising as he would have been. Okay, so your teenage years, uh, you note that they were years of hyperactivism in civil society. And they were also ones of mostly misery. So why was this the case? So in part, because society had just changed radically and had become much less safe than it was before 1990. It had opened up, but with opening up, there had been a number of things happening on the ground. There was uh, things like sex trafficking had started to take place. There were more, more drugs. People had, uh, there was a higher degree of violence because there was a lesser degree of control from the state and the state police. And for uh, teenage girls, it was actually quite dangerous and also socially now stigmatized being outside late in the evening. And so people, I, I would be told often by my parents, it's not safe to be out there when it gets dark. And so when school finished, I would just be in my room, go go back home and, and read and work. There were much less things to do at school. We used to have these um, after school clubs during communism for like maths or poetry or literature or arts, where you could just go if you had a particular talent. And all of these things had closed down because the state had no more resources to find them and they were also not such a priority anymore education wasn't really on the agenda at that point there were other things that had to be prioritized so all these clubs had closed and the, the pioneers camps and all these things that we used to do as, uh, as as afternoon as kind of children's activity were also gone the only thing that there was was there a number of foreign ngos came to albania and opened different kinds of projects that tried to create what was then called civil society this idea that since we could no longer rely on the state to direct us we had to find forms of coordination through civil society associations and uh, on the ground spontaneous initiatives which were often embraced by people for also for instrumental reasons because they just gave you money for projects and they made you organize events and i was active in a number of these associations in part 
because I was curious and they were about new things. So I was active, for example, in one of these associations campaigning for awareness um, on HIV, even though there was no HIV in Albania at that point. Um, or I was active in the open society debating groups, debating clubs. In part, as I say, because really there wasn't anything else to do. And so if you wanted to do something in the afternoon or with your friends, you just had to join these civil society initiatives. And in part, out of curiosity to try and explore this new world. But it was a very constrained environment. And it was it didn't feel, as a teenager, it didn't feel particularly liberating. It was even more burdensome from someone with my family background, because I felt as though in the 90s, my parents and for my grandmother, this was now the time in which the family was finally free. And I felt like I had this massive burden of responsibility to enjoy the kinds of freedoms that my parents didn't have and to try and make the most of those freedoms that they didn't have and to try and read and be active and be a good citizen and um, try to succeed and be ambitious and so on. When in fact, in an environment in which, in fact, as I say, I felt very constrained and didn't feel safe and uh, where, you know, for example, my, my childhood friend, I talk about her in the book, had... Um, disappeared with someone after 1990 and I didn't know what happened to her until I found out that she had also been involved in a kind of sex trafficking scheme or there were other people who were just uh, having car accidents or all these things that didn't used to happen under communism in Albania were suddenly there and very present and they confronted you with this individual drama at every uh, turning point but it was not something that you could really talk about it was something that you had to somehow absorb uh, in the name of the sacrifices that had to be made to gain real liberal freedom. Right. So the ambiguities, even paradoxes associated with freedom and with respect to your friends, some of the, the more dangerous, right, and seedier aspects of that freedom. And also those pressures then you feel that you have because of the freedom, which I, I can imagine is just, it creates a lot of stress. And um, then that can ultimately also be depressing for someone, right? And and, and create a situation where you feel unhappy or even paralyzed in a way. It was a combination of guilt and responsibility. I think guilt because I felt that, you know, I wasn't going through the same hardship as what my parents had gone through. And I was constantly reminded of this and of my family background and how all their lives had been waiting for something like this to happen. And now it had happened and I had a responsibility to make the most of this new freedom. And on the other hand, this sense of responsibility coupled with a sense of constraint because of the social environment in which I was operating and all these dramas unfolding in front of my eyes from all corners, something that I wasn't quite able to articulate at the time. But I think afterwards, I feel might have has probably had a really important impact in terms of how I thought about the world. Certainly. And it's a lot to digest in that, that short period of time. Uh, So I want to talk about the civil war, the Albanian civil war of 1997, when over 2000 people were killed. So you were in the country still at that time, and you witnessed it firsthand. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so uh, this was, in some ways, 1990 was a result of a kind of logic of opening up to the free market and free individual initiative and responsibility taking off and being derailed or going to an extreme level. Because throughout the 90s, the key word had been that Albania didn't have a financial sector, that people needed to develop individual initiatives and they had to um, save and invest money. And uh, But since we didn't really have a developed financial sector, then suddenly these companies began to emerge promising very high return for investments. And since people had been told to invest, that's what they did. You know, they put all their money there and uh, these companies were promising very high rates of interest and, and, and profit. So 
throughout the early 90s and then eventually 95, 96, this became the most prominent phenomenon in Albanian society. People would get money from remittances or from immigrants bringing um, money to the country or, you know, what they saved or what they earned through salaries or through businesses, small businesses. In Albania, they would put this money into these schemes that weren't really called by their name until the point in which they collapsed. Um, so Albania was advised by the IMF, by the World Bank, by a number of financial institutions. And I think they had tried to, or at least they now say that they had tried to warn the government about the risk of these schemes, but the, the government hadn't really listened to their advice, but they were eventually called Ponzi schemes when they collapsed, the pyramid schemes, when they collapsed. The idea is that you they you get the first people who invest can get these high returns, but then the pyramid kind of tightens up. And when you get to the uh, point, to the highest point of it, then it's just, it becomes insolvent. And this is what happened in 97. All these financial companies became insolvent one after the other. They all crumbled and people had put all their savings in them and basically lost everything. There were some two thirds of the country had done this, and there were some quite a lot of Albanian families who had actually even sold their houses in order to put their money into these financial companies and lost everything. At which point everything collapsed, you know, hell broke, broke loose. People tried to, uh, they were looting depot weapons and trying to um, get hold of weapons and to fight the government. And so the country was on the brink of civil war. And this was the year in which I was studying for my A-levels. It was my final year at school in which I had to decide what to do at university, but where basically the state completely, so first the financial sector completely collapsed and then just the state collapsed because it was unable to even guarantee law and order anymore. You just had these bands of gangs of people with weapons fighting left, right and center. And uh, there were people with Kalashnikovs and victims every day, lots of uh, Albanians trying to leave the country and go to Italy. And some of these tragedies happened in the sea. There were a boat that was capsized with lots of women and very, very young children also drowning. So it was a period in which my father was in parliament because he was an MP. And so he was just also not safe. Um, the parliament was constantly surrounded by gunmen and there was a risk of being set on fire. My mother ran away with my brother because at one point they were caught in fire and they to save their lives, they just kind of jumped on this boat and ended up in, in Italy. And uh, school was closed, there was a curfew and we were completely isolated. And it was a time of great uncertainty and great difficulty and also really hard for me to explain how that whole thing could happen. And this is why in the book, this, this chapter on 1997 is actually told with just the words of the diary that I wrote at the time. So I didn't, I, I, I tried to explain what had happened and to reconstruct the narrative and found it so hard that in the end I gave up on trying to have an authorial voice reconstructing everything and just decided to copy paste from my diaries at the time and where people can see what the what an emotional upheaval it was, but also what it meant to be subjected to this dynamic um, every day and to be feeling completely at, at a loss and at risk of one's lives as well. I think it's a really effective choice that you use and, and narrative choice that you move from narrating the story to just basically a timeline with the details because it gives you a sense of kind of the immediacy and how, how things are unfolding so rapidly and then the, the uncertainty surrounding that. And you noted how that was the final year of high school. And so my next question actually was going to be about the, those final months of high school. You talk about learning via television, right? And uh, then you talk about the final celebration at a place called Hotel California. So these last months of high school were 
let's say atypical or downright bizarre. So maybe you can just talk about that a little bit. Yeah, the thing that really stood out for me was the proms. Like, I don't know how you call this in English, a kind of final year party at the end of your A-levels. That was really the one of the weirdest things because there was a curfew. And so you couldn't actually have an evening party. Usually every other year you would have had a party that would have continued. It would have started in the evening and then continued into the night. Whereas this was a time where you, at three o'clock in the afternoon you had to be home because there was a curfew when it got dark. and But also afterwards in the summer. And so I remember having this final year party in a hotel that was owned by one of the local gangs, which was the only thing that was safe enough that they could actually accommodate us because otherwise everywhere else there was shooting and looting and so on. Because they could protect you. And they could protect us. So there was this kind of local gang that was protecting us because the police was completely unable to enforce anything. And so we were in this hotel basically surrounded by gunmen with Kalashnikovs. <laughs> all wearing evening dresses, like really long kind of silk evening dresses at two in the afternoon in July at the heat of like 40 degrees. And people having this kind of party up to like three o'clock when the time of the curfew came and the, the gunman came and said, okay, now it's over, party's over, you have to go home. And before that, uh, I remember my final, the exams, so the A-level exams as well was a completely surreal experience because you'd prepared, you know, these four years preparing for your A-levels and your final exam and so on until the day of the exam itself where the school received a phone call that there had been a bomb in the school And so we were uh, immediately let out. We were given the answers and we were told that the exam mark would track predicted grades. And so there was no need to worry. And so you just kind of copied however many answers you needed to get to your predicted grades and then just kind of left the school because of this threat of a bomb. And it was never clear whether the threat was real or it was just someone who had abused the circumstances and tried to play a trick on, on the school or tried to save themselves or whatever. But basically, it was this weird combination of going on as though there was this apparent kind of semblance of normality of still trying to do A-levels, still trying to have an A-levels party, still trying to think about what kind of degree you might pursue at university, combined with this completely surreal circumstances in which all of that takes place, the bomb in the exam or this uh, hotel surrounded by gunmen at two o'clock and so on. So it was a very weird time. It's really an incredible story, and I can't imagine any other high school graduation parties uh, rivaling yours. Okay, so I wanted to move to your final chapter now, and I have kind of a long question, and it's also a question in thinking about growing up in a tumultuous, um, unstable period. So in the final chapter you write, I accepted that history repeats itself, and then you compare 1990 with 1997. Uh, noting that in 1990, we had nothing but hope. In 1997, we lost that too. The future looked bleak, and yet I had to act as if there still was a future. I had to make decisions featuring myself in it. And one thing that I found really compelling about your book is that it is a coming-of-age story for both you and your country, right? In, in a sense, you know, the country is coming of age or at least transitioning onto something else. And so my question for you is, how did you cope and find your path during this uncertain and seemingly hopeless period? Can you offer any words of wisdom for young people today who might also be feeling hopeless in light of the immense challenges their societies are facing and the globe is facing, right? So climate change, the COVID pandemic, and certainly the war in Ukraine and, and threat of nuclear war. Yeah, so I think one of the things that um, I often think about when I think about hope is the fact that it's a wrong approach to 
to the world to think, okay, what can the world offer me that makes me more hopeful about where we're heading towards? And so do I see any signs around me of progress? Do I see any goodwill? Do I see any possibility of actually eventually events and things start taking a positive turn? And if I were honest and I had to answer that question honestly, I'd say, well, probably no, especially right now with the crisis and with the pandemic and so on. But on the other hand, I often think of hope as the kind of thing that we need precisely when it looks like the world has no hope to offer. And one of the things that uh, my experience, in particular my grandmother and the words of my grandmother, who was a very interesting character, who kind of lived through many transitions in her life and gone through from a life of privilege and wealth and power to one of extreme misery and oppression, was the fact that she always said to me, look, uh, you know, you're always people are always moral agents and it's in our power to be moral agents despite these circumstances. There is something about the human being which no oppressive system, no crisis, no terrible circumstances can ever take away, which is dignity and the kind of hope that comes from knowing that we are beings with dignity. And in that perspective, I think this is, again, something that I sort of have from my grandmother, is this idea that hope is more of a moral imperative, is not something that we need to look around and see, do we find hope or not, but something that we have to think, okay, I have a duty to be hopeful, because what else is there if I don't look into the future and don't feel like I need to mobilize, I need to do my best, I need to kind of recover this moral capacity and this belief in the humanity of others, even in severe circumstances, even under war, even in this complete crisis, then we, you know, why are we there still and what are we there for? And so if we want to have a perspective that is not completely nihilistic and that is not pessimistic, it's necessary to have hope. And so for me, hope is, this is what I always say to, to younger people, is hope is a kind of moral duty. And all you have to remind it of is the power of that moral duty within you, rather than looking outside you and looking into the world and hoping that something will come from there. If anything positive happens, it's because we recover our faith in humanity. So an existentialist approach, essentially. So refusing to resign oneself to the fate and actually creating a situation in which at least... Like you said, you're not looking outward for hope, but you're living according to your truth, your dignity, integrity, and 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 kind of your commitment to your fellow humans. Yeah, exactly. And and this sense that you know, I say I start this book by by talking about more uh, Rosa Luxemburg and the way she turns on its head this saying of Marx that people don't make history out of their free will. And uh, and Rosa Luxemburg says they don't make history of their own free will, but they still make history. And this idea that we still are agents, that we still have moral agency, and that we should be reminded of that whenever we face a crisis like this one. Yeah. And I thought your discussion of your grandmother's life and the influence she had on you was really powerful, how she always returned to this idea, well, I made these decisions to live this way. And no matter what circumstances you find yourself in no matter what the political system is you have choices there are they might be limited but you still have choices in how you respond yeah that's right yeah i think that's really important well i'd like to thank you for taking the time to speak with me about your book i really enjoyed reading it and i can't wait to assign it in my class on eastern european history because it's not just a personal story but it's also a story as you note about a society and political social economic transition. So these larger changes happening alongside personal ones. And also because we have so little uh, on Albania, and I feel like that's something that gets short shrift in my classes on Eastern Europe. So 
Thank you for writing the book and I look forward to assigning it. And Thank my last you. question is about what you're currently working on just a minute or two. If you yeah, have I, I'm, I'm trying to write a book, a family history again on dignity inspired by my grandmother's life and uh, talking about what dignity means both at the individual level, at the collective level, again, in times of crisis through the wars, the First World War, the Second World War. And so it's in part a story about a woman that uh, lives at the end of an empire that her family is associated with and looks for a country, Albania, and uh, but also the story of a country that tries to become independent and to recover its own political dignity on the face of these other empires developing. Uh, so yeah, it's basically, a, again, a project that is in some ways similar to free, but not first personal, um, but a narrative of someone else's life, kind of biographical book that tries to tackle the theme of what dignity is and what it means both at a personal level and at a collective level. Sounds fascinating. I look forward to reading it and best of luck as you're working on that. And uh, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much.